I was right. They're coming down by the hundreds. Get Hall. Listen. Listen very carefully. If you ever hear a sound like this, run for your life. Run. Run before it is too late. For if you stay, you will lose your soul. Coming closer, closer, closer is an enemy from outer space. From out of this world it came, a horrifying terror that threatened mankind, haunting and possessing every human being within range, an indestructible danger beyond all earthly understanding. Vincent Broadhead is dead. Dead? I watched him die a few hours ago in that plant, his whole body covered with some kind of corrosive poisoning eaten away. It poisoned everything it touched. The mind and the body of man was no longer in his control. They ran from this unknown menace, but there was no escape. We're holding this block. We've got to. At least until the oxygen takes effect. What's in those doors, mister? Yes, what is it? Tell us. Inside those domes, a creature from outside this earth. Ah, you're mad. I've seen them. Thousands of tiny creatures that can join together and expand into things a hundred feet high. Welcome back to Geek Channel 8. I'm Eric. And I'm John. <laughs> Just getting adjusted to a new home schedule and um, finishing up. Uh, actually, we finished Succession and Barry. Succession completely ended on a Shakespearean note. Like it was. Why like, is there? So I don't know anything about Succession. I haven't watched it. And it's like all over regular media. It's on social media. There's all sorts of spoilers about the ending going on. And I'm like, I don't even know anything uh, about this. And suddenly they're talking about shocking <laughs> ending and all of that. And I'm like, oh, great. Okay. The best way to describe it is imagine if Shakespeare wrote Dynasty. You know, that but sounds yeah. boring as shit. Okay. But it's not. <laughs> It's a portrait of a family who's literally like the 1% of the 1%. And each of these kids just who I don't, are, you know, the Sacklers, just as we talking about this, just got away <laughs> with like getting this settlement of like a minuscule amount for all the trillions of dollars they've cost us for mm -hmm. their opiate crisis. Last thing I want to do is watch a film about how great the 1% is. Oh, no. And that is not what the show is about at all. Like it pulls no... Like it makes no apologies for any of these people. These people are meant to be like. I want to see Barry cross with uh, <laughs> Succession, where like he has to kill people. Like, I oh, <laughs> living out the true American fantasy, huh? <laughs> yeah, but sort of like the falling down of the 2020s. <laughs> I mean, I think it would be fun, but at the same time, the show knows the reality that it's in as well, and. It's kind of taken like the subtext of like this family is like the Murdoch family. And I don't want to give too much of it away, but the whole show is about each of the kids trying to make an argument as to why they should have their father's empire. As we know, Rupert Murdoch stretches into like news, stretches into movies, stretches into like every walk of life. Like if they make a deal, it's. It's never even in the millions. It's always in the billions. And the show knows that each of these people are like the worst people that humanity has to offer. And it never makes an excuse for them either. I have a feeling it's, I'm going to watch it. And it's going to be like, they get their comeuppance in the end. And it's like, mm -hmm. I don't want that because like, the truth is rich people get away with all kinds of crap. And that's, <laughs> what the, and that's what the show knows that that's the thing is like the show knows that. I mean, <sighs> To not give too much away, the only comeuppance is in the tragic sense that they can't exist as human beings. And you see that. And you're literally watching people that keep wanting to strive for some sense of human contact and interaction and realizing that just how they were raised and everything just shows that they can't. 
okay. <laughs> and in the end, it costs them. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure I'll hear from it because, like, everyone in the world is watching Succession, <laughs> like, right now. So I'm sure the viewers will write in and, like, say, how can you do a TV and movie <laughs> podcast and not know about succession you know and it's like i don't want to it's like i have too many other stuff on you know what it's gonna get put on my list to get to after i watch the wire it's oh like, god it's just okay so it's and like, i also have not watched the wire either <laughs> that's the thing it's like there's too many shows it's like once i get done with right? one i'll like get to the next you know yeah um, it's like Breaking Bad almost got that way with me too. Like I just had so many people telling me I need to watch the show. I need to watch the show. And I'm like, I know I need to, but you guys are making it feel like homework. Well, I did it. I watched Breaking Bad the way that I feel like you should watch Breaking Bad, which is the same way I watched Game of Thrones, which is I waited <laughs> until those series were over. And then <laughs> I watched all the episodes like, uh, in a row without having to wait for like a new season in between and all that. So you you were there when like the last episode of Game of Thrones hit, you were like fully hyped with everyone and then just. Well, the only thing is the Red <laughs> Wedding like got spoiled for me because everyone in the world talked about it. That's the only thing that I can't Ugh. stand is people. This stuff is still exists out on the various streaming platforms and there are people who haven't seen them. So don't give spoilers it no. might be three or four years it, before i get yeah to it, it might know? be someone's first time so just just don't be and With, what was worse was watching the red wedding being there right when it premiered and i'll tell you this if there's people out there that are like the oh i read the books first you guys were the assholes to me beforehand because you're like oh well i saw it coming because i read the books like no you guys are just jerks <laughs> Although I do recommend reading the books first of anything. So <laughs> and don't be a jerk when you do it either. <laughs> no, but like I remember when the Lord of the Rings came out, I had seen every Peter Jackson film. I was a Peter Jackson fan and I read everything Tolkien had written starting when I was about six years old with The Hobbit. So ah. I had read all the Tolkien stuff and seen all the Peter Jackson stuff. So I was a double nerd for that. And like, and then yet there were all these people in line with their elf ears and crap like that who had never bothered to read the book. And I'm like, uh, <laughs> priority ticketing should be given to those of us who have waited decades for this. <laughs> I'll say this though. I mean, I didn't, by the time those came out, I didn't read the books, but when you watched them in the theaters, you knew that filmmaking was absolutely being changed. When you saw them because oh, like, i considered moving to new zealand to work on them <laughs> like i didn't know anyone in the new zealand film industry i didn't know anything i was like but i just thought you know if i move there there's no way i can't get on the set you know i felt that way after i watched deathgasm for the first time too <laughs> <laughs> all, right. all um, right let's jump into Quartermass 2, also known as Enemy from Space. Yeah, that was All like right. the US title, wasn't it? It was Enemy from Space or Yeah, yeah. Just huh. like Quartermass Experiment was also known as the Creeping Unknown. Oh, that's right. That's right. So let's talk a little bit about the year. What was going on that year? Well, uh, a lot apparently, because um, and if I can jump halfway into the timeline real quick, apparently. British Prime Minister Harold Macmillan said in 1957 that the Britons, quote, never had it so good. <laughs> According to the Prime Minister at the time, 1957 was the happiest year that you could have been a Brit. <laughs> That's like, but don't politicians <laughs> all say that? Like, wasn't, yeah, wasn't, but wasn't like but, Biden just on TV last night or something talking about how like how uh, great probably. the economy is and, you know. <laughs> <laughs> meanwhile, like everyone's always like, why the hell is it so expensive right now? And like everybody's on strike and like, you know. Well, there was some good stuff that happened in England at the time. Um, I'm going to quickly try to touch on everything here. February 22nd, Queen Elizabeth II grants her husband, Duke of Edinburgh, the style and title of Prince of the UK. May 2nd, we have another Hammer production, The Curse of Frankenstein, released. Um, and a couple weeks later, <laughs> Quartermass 2 would be released. Uh, May 14th, uh, the end of petrol rationing because the Suez Canal crisis ended then. So I guess that was a good thing. 
June 1st, we have the first premium bond winners, which were lottery bonds in the UK, were selected by Ernie. Ernie is Electronic Random Number Indicator Equipment, or it's like a hardware that generates random numbers. So it's the first time like an, I guess, kind of an artificial, not not an artificial intelligence, but just like a random lottery spinner machine. Yeah, Yeah. a a computer generated lottery. Yeah, random Uh, number generator. July 6th, John Lennon and Paul McCartney first met as teenagers at St. Peter's Church in Liverpool. Lennon's skiffle group, the Quarry Men, were playing. If anyone needs to know what skiffle is, as like I did, I had to look it up. It's basically a genre folk music. It's uh, it's kind of like um, the British version of rockabilly. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> going on. Uh, so in the U.S. on July 16th, John Glenn flew the F-8U supersonic jet from California to New York in three hours, 23 minutes, and eight seconds, setting a new transcontinental speed record. August 5th, Andy Cap first appeared in Northern Editions of the Daily Mirror. The worst comic strip ever. <laughs> like, I, I was like, always had to skip that one. Yeah, comic strip about getting drunk and coming home and beating your wife. That's every uh... every single every <laughs> single strip was the same thing. It's like how oh, did that endure yeah, as much yeah. as it did? <laughs> if the Simpsons haven't made fun of that, they should. <laughs> All, right, All right, what else continue. we got? Um, in August, the Zeta fusion reactor began operation in the Atomic Energy Research Establishment in Harwell, Oxfordshire. Um, on September 5th in the U.S., Viking Press published On the Road by Jack Kerouac. And also in the U.S., on September 26th, West Side Story opened on Broadway. And on October 2nd, Bridge on the River Kwai is released in the U.K., be released in the U.S. on December 18th, and become the highest grossing film in both of those countries for 1957. And on October 4th, Russia launched Sputnik 1, which set off the space race and the space age. Very big moment and a very big science fiction inspiration from there as well. Uh, October 10th in Britain, the Windscale fire occurred, in which the graphite core of a nuclear reactor at Windscale Cumbria caught fire and released substantial amounts of radioactive contamination into the surrounding area. An inquiry would determine that the fire was a result of a combination of human error, poor management, and faulty instruments. Let's see what else we got. So, like everything. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. So, just like everything about the place was a failure on every level. (laughs) November 8th, the Operation Grapple was carried out, which was the first successful test of an explosion of a British hydrogen bomb at Christmas Island in the Pacific. And on December 10th, Alexander R. Todd won the Nobel Prize for Chemistry for work on nucleotides and nucleotide coenzymes. Todd was also someone who worked on the chemical synthesis of nucleotides, which led to the elucidation of the chemical structure of DNA. Wow. Yeah, I wonder, like, since we are a Geek Channel podcast, how many people were able to, like, stick around with those two sentences. (laughs) And for fans of The Crown out there that are listening, like myself, the Royal Christmas Message is broadcast on television with the Queen on camera for the first time. And this would become an annual tradition. But it was also right. a major milestone because it was the first time the queen herself appeared on camera. Wow. Okay. All right. Thanks for that. I'll uh, give us a little <laughs> background into the production here. So we can't talk about Quartermass 2, the movie, without talking about Quartermass 2, the TV series. What they called them was serials. We would call them miniseries in the U.S. That's how Quartermass really starts. The first Quartermass film was a Reader's Digest version, if you will, of the Quartermass TV series. The Quartermass 2 was the name of the second TV serial Hmm. in, in Britain. And that became Quartermass 2, the movie by Hammer. And that's kind of how all these go. So. Basically, on September 22nd, 1955, the ITV network was established by the Television Act of 1954 in the UK. And it was the first commercial TV station in Britain, which ended the BBC monopoly. 
Mm. So for the first time, the BBC had to compete for viewers. Hmm. There was an internal memo written in 1954 by the BBC's TV controller of programs, Cecil McGivern. And he wrote, quote, had competitive television been in existence, then we would have killed it every Saturday night while the quarter mass experiment lasted. <laughs> We're going to need many more quarter mass experiment programs. <laughs> so BBC staff writer Nigel Neal was commissioned to write a sequel to quarter mass experiment in 1955. So he had just renewed or was in the process of contract negotiations to renew his staff writing contract with the BBC. And as part of that, he had to sign the Official Secrets Act because the BBC is government. So since he was working That's for the right. government, he had to, to sign the Official Secrets Act, which <laughs> is kind of strange if you're a TV writer, but okay. But yeah. <laughs> and apparently the fact that he had to like be sworn to secrecy, you know, this official like Secrets Act, that plus public fears over secret UK Ministry of Defense research establishments, those two things inspired him in the writing of Quartermass 2. And I will definitely be bringing that up again when we go over this, because now that makes a lot of sense as to what I just saw. <laughs> so Quartermass 2 was produced and directed by Rudolf Cartier, who also did the first one. He and Neil liked working together. After their original Quartermass serial, they went on to do an adaptation of Weathering Heights in 1953, hmm. George Orwell's 1984 in 1954, hmm. <laughs> and on a play of Nigel Neal's about the abominable snowman called The Creature in 1955. Hmm. Quartermass 2 ended up being six half-hour-long episodes presented live on Saturday nights at 8 p.m. from October 22nd to November 26th in 1955. Each episode was rehearsed on the Monday to Friday before transmission, and then the camera crew rehearsed in the studio for most of the day on the Saturday. Okay, and then they would go live on Saturday night. Now, I want to spend a second and talk about this because this is very different from what we're used to working in the industry today, and mm. it's kind of cool, actually. And it kind of makes you wish you could like go back to that, you know, or, or at least try it out. Not all scenes were performed live because they had an increased budget of 7,552 pounds, which was about double what they had for the quarter mass experiment. Cartier was able to include more pre-filmed scenes on 35 millimeter film, which were inserted live during the broadcast. Most of the pre-filmed material was shot on location at the Shell Haven Oil Refinery in Stanford, La Hope. And filming also took place in Essex for material showing the meteorites being discovered in fields. And the boiler rooms of the BBC TV Center, which was still under construction in London, were used hmm. for scenes set inside the factory. Hmm. So it was the most ambitious location filming that the BBC had ever done. Each episode of Quartermass 2 was telerecorded onto 35 millimeter film during its live transmission. So they're basically performing it live like a play and they're shooting it, but they're recording it on 35 millimeter film while it's going out on TV so <laughs> that they could then take the film of it and air it the following night as a repeat. Right. So they're right. making a movie of the live TV broadcast. <laughs> all six episodes are still intact in the archives so this you can actually go back and re-watch this if you want to oh, watch good. the full thing but there is quality degradation to the prints as you were describing that i was just thinking this would make one hell of a criterion collection like just all the tv series of quarter mass yeah could, i mean because like could you imagine the restoration they do on that yeah, and now that we've watched these crappy versions, like you watch, like <laughs> two months from now, they're going to come out with that. <laughs> <You're> right. <laughs>
so when there was some artistic problems or technical problems or something like that, it wasn't the best performance or there was a, something was not great. Cuttier had those scenes re-performed by the cast as soon as the broadcast was over so that he could get like a better take of it. And then they would insert that into the rebroadcast, right? So, <laughs> so it was actually probably better to wait for the repeat rather than to watch it live. <laughs> I'll just um, wait for it to come out on streaming. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was also probably the first BBC show to actually do this. In the time between Quartermass Experiment in 1953 and Quartermass 2, the number of households in the UK with TVs had doubled. And so the viewership of Quartermass 2 effectively doubled. The serial had 7.9 million viewers for the first three episodes, 8.3 million for the fourth and fifth, and 9 million by the last. And a BBC audience poll found 90% of viewers had watched at least five episodes of the production. So for the UK, those are big numbers. Quartermass 2 received good reviews in the London Daily Papers. But Cecil McGivern, remember him, the uh, programmer's guy who wrote that memo? He, ah. thought it, he thought it wasn't as good as the first. So, <laughs> oh, Cecil. Some viewers wrote into the BBC, they were worried about whether or not Quartermass survived because it's left ambiguous in the TV serial. Huh. Ironically, <laughs> the BBC was its own worst critic when on its website, it gave Quartermass 2 an unfavorable review when it was released on DVD in 2005, saying, quote, the script is too often let down by the production's rougher edges your heart will break halfway through episode six as it all falls apart and then there's monica gray less an actress than a finishing school on legs <laughs> wow that's harsh <laughs> i mean good luck trying to get a review like that today <laughs> Writing in the Times in 2006, Morgan Falconer claimed to find racist undertones in the serial. He said, quote, <laughs> Quartermass, for instance, often seemed to have an unhealthy preoccupation with blackness, a barely veiled commentary on what? racial change in Britain. In one scene in Quartermass 2, the professor stands outside a pub and watches the sky fill with dark asteroids. They're coming in their thousands, he says. This is it. So I haven't actually seen the series we watched. Okay, movie, yeah, I, I, I watched but, the movie, but this, good God. I think the, the, he's reaching here. Because I'm guessing. Yeah. Because, you know, this reminds me of that scene in Chasing Amy where like Hooper X claims <laughs> yeah. that Star Wars is <laughs> black man down. You know, do you remember that? Yep. <laughs> it was like in the, inside, of a, inside of Vader is a feeble, crusty old white man. Yeah, that... that. <laughs> Those movies are about how the white man keeps the brother man down, even in a galaxy far, far away. Check this shit. You got Cracker Farm Boy, Luke Skywalker, Nazi poster boy, blonde hair, blue eyes. And then you got Darth Vader, the blackest brother in the galaxy, Nubian God. What's a Nubian? Shut the fuck up. Now, Vader, he's a spiritual brother, you know, down with the force and all that good shit. Then there's Cracker, Skywalker, gets his hands on a lightsaber, and the boy decides he's going to run the fucking universe. Gets a whole clan of whites together. And they going to bust up Vader's hood, the Death Star. Now, what the fuck do you call that? Intergalactic Civil War? Gentrification! They going to drive out the black element to make the galaxy, quote, unquote, safe for white folks. And Jedi's the most insulting installment. Because Vader's beautiful black visage is sullied when he pulls off his mask to reveal a feeble, crusty old white man. They trying to tell us that deep inside, we all wants to be white. I hear that guy's voice when I read this review about Quartermass. All right. Anyway. <laughs> anyway, wow. Um, but yeah, I, I haven't watched the serials, but I 
did not get that impression watching the movie. Well, the movie's supposed to be a fairly faithful adaptation, so I'm guessing. Okay. It's... <laughs> anyway, yeah. In a 2003 documentary about Nigel Neal's career, critic Kim Newman praised Quartermass 2 and its relevance to the British way of life, saying, Quartermass 2 is the British invasion of the body snatchers. But I yeah. don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. What Quartermass 2 does is take that metaphor and apply it to the specific conditions of Britain in the 1950s. Not uh, just the Cold War paranoia, but the traditional British grumbling resentment of bureaucracy as represented by the council, or in this case, big business, unquote. When we get to one specific spot, I literally had to pause it just to write my notes down. And it, it is something to that effect because- Yeah, yeah, it's, we'll, it's, we'll talk about yeah. it when we get there. And maybe you can tell me how it's, this was 1955? Seven, or the serial or the movie? The uh, Yeah, so the, well, okay, the movie, 1957, whatever. Yeah. You can tell me why they're like critical of big business. And yet we're, here we are in 2023 talking about succession. All right. Still, so, I'm still critical about big business. <laughs> all right. One last thing about the series is that the British Film Institute, writing about the TV series now here, said, quote, with its tale of an invasion by an invisible enemy indistinguishable from ourselves, Neil's story tapped into contemporary fears about the red threat, although mm -hmm. in a less direct way than the American science fiction films of the 1950s including yeah. Invasion of the Body Snatchers. <laughs> At the same time, it reflected the widespread anxiety of the nuclear age. The story begins with a failed test of a nuclear-powered rocket in Australia at a time when the country was, in reality, a site for a series of British nuclear weapons tests. In short, Quartermass II was the perfect Cold War drama, unquote. Okay, let's talk about the film. <laughs> production so that gives you the background of the tv series coming into the film the the quartermass experiment movie was such a major success that hammer bought the rights to nigel neal's sequel to the series before it even aired on the bbc yeah and so remember it was shown live so it was like they couldn't even preview it right <laughs> so nigel neal wrote the first draft of the screenplay with later drafts written by Val Guest, the director. The plot right. is a condensed but mostly faithful retelling of the original TV series. And although Quartermass 2 was financially successful, its box office performance was beaten by another Hammer film that year, The Curse of Frankenstein, which we mentioned. Just came so, out like a couple weeks beforehand. Yep. So from this point on, Hammer focused primarily on its gothic horror films and did not make another Quartermass film for a decade. Quartermass 2 was the first film for which Hammer pre-sold the distribution rights to, in the United States, something they would do with many subsequent films. Nigel Neal was unhappy with Hammer's adaptation of the Quartermass experiment, as we said when we did that episode, because... Right. One, he received no money from the sale of the film rights. So <laughs> I feel like this is a writer's constant complaint. Let's like, okay, there's a new way that we're going to show this thing after you've written it. And then like, you don't get any residuals from that. I wonder when they're going to strike about that. having <laughs> Neil pressured the BBC for more control over his work. Despite being in the final months of his BBC contract, he was allowed to collaborate with Hammer on the adaptation of Quartermass 2. The first draft was written by Neil with some input from Anthony Hines, the producer. Um, later drafts, Val Guest worked on uh, like he did with the Quartermass experiment. Guest said of Neil's script that it was, quote, lots of philosophizing and very down-to-earth thinking, but it was too long. It would not have held screen-wise. <laughs> So again, I had to tailor it and sharpen it and hopefully not ruin it, unquote. Mm -hmm. They submitted the script to the British Board of Film Censors, the BBFC, remember them? Oh, and yeah. In April 1956, BBFC reader Audrey Field 
which I just pictured the church lady from Saturday Night Live. <laughs> like, she's like, quote, there should be the customary general caution that the sky is not the limit, either in sights or sounds, unquote. So that was her comment about this. <laughs> Their main objection to <laughs> was to the scene in which a guard from uh, Winterden Flats complex murders a family having a picnic. This scene was omitted from the final film, although it is present in the TV version. So huh. what I don't get about Britain is that TVs are in everybody's home and anyone can like tune in. Kids can tune onto the TV or whatever. Whereas movies, you got to go out, you got to buy a ticket, you got to get past like someone who's taking that ticket and usher. So in the US, censorship is way more strict of television than it is of movies historically. In Britain, it's the opposite. Like, we can show this on TV, but, you know, the <laughs> film censors won't let you show this because it this was something that was in the TV version. And this isn't the first time we've seen this. We heard about this with the previous one, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so. let's also not forget that was it the 70s or 80s is when it, it was the British board that gave us the video nasties list, didn't they? Yeah. Yeah, so uh, there are no strangers to, like, being very uptight with their choices of you know, yeah. restrictions on films. Yeah. Like I said, I picture like Dana Carvey's church lady, like, you know. Yeah. And apparently endearing for like 30 years on that board too. <laughs> Just like with the quarter mass experiment, quarter mass two condenses a lot of the events and including changing the ending. And hmm. some characters are omitted. Other characters appear in quarter mass experiment have been, uh, you know, are back in. Brian Dunleavy's back as Professor Bernard Quartermass. Depending on who you listen to, Dunleavy's alcoholism presented challenges for the production. Nigel Neal hmm. said that when he visited the set, quote, Dunleavy was so full of whiskey he could hardly stand up. He staggered over to the set and looked dazedly around. They held up cue cards with his lines, or sorry, they held up idiot cards with his <laughs> lines on it, and he said, what's this movie called? And they said, well, it's called Quartermass 2. He said, I've got to say all that. There's too much talk. Cut down some of the talk. He tried to read it, and he had to have go after go after go, so crippled with drink he hardly knew who he was, unquote. Val Guest has denied Neil's claims and Guest said, quote, so many stories have been concocted since about how he was a paralytic. It's absolute balls because he was not paralytic. <laughs> he wasn't stone cold sober either, but he was a pro and he knew his lines, unquote. Guest also said, quote, by after lunch, he would come and to me and say, give me a breakdown of the story so far. Where have I just been before this scene? We used to feed him black coffee all morning, and then we discovered he was lacing it. <laughs> but he was a very professional actor and very easy to work with, unquote. So once again, Nigel Neal claims that Dunleavy was drunk, and Val Guest says that he was professional. Yeah, but it's funny. Deny that he was drunk sometimes. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say like uh, Neil having issues with uh, Dunleavy coming back again. It's like he didn't like him the first time around. But the funny thing is, is watching this movie, I actually felt Dunleavy's portrayal of, and I've heard the name on the film pronounced Quatermass <laughs> quite a couple times. So yeah. his his performance of Quatermass, I think, really fit this story. Like this is the one time I felt okay, he's not just a detached jerk. Yeah. Like it, it, it had its place in this story. So I know they say Quatermass. I'm going to continue to say Quartermass just because in American English, Q-U-A mm -hmm. always sounds like Qua to me, not Quay. You or, know? Qua or Quake. So like Earthquake. Well, quake, I guess it does with Quake, but. Because yeah, that, that, that's what I was thinking when I was hearing that. I was like, Q U because I was trying to write it down. I was like, oh yeah, I guess there is quake, like earthquake, as opposed to quarter and then all that. So yeah, well, quarter of course has the R, the R in the between. Yeah, yeah, but I don't know. I it's quake 
Quatermass is hard for me to say. So I'm going to keep saying. I mean, it's just really hard to say in general. Yeah. And, you know, like we said, we always have the disclaimer. We're going to mispronounce everything on the show. So I didn't know if Cecil was Cecil or Cecil. And I couldn't (laughs) find any pronunciation for his name. And he should be for decades. So it should be be acceptable both ways. (laughs) John Longden was cast as inspector lomax now mm-hmm. lomax had been played by jack warner in the quartermass experiment ah okay okay but he was not available he was a major british star of silent films and was in a bunch of early hitchcock stuff like blackmail l street calling and hmm. the skin game and nigel neal liked him better okay uh, than jack warner as the sergeant can kind of see that yeah a couple of other notable castings. Brian Forbes played Marsh and he said, quote, I was one of the people attacked by the alien pods. This pod <laughs> exploded and I ended up with what was supposed to be a terrible alien growth on my face. Come lunchtime and we all went off to the pub. Of course, I couldn't take this stuff off. The makeup was too complex. <laughs> the landlord refused to serve me. <laughs> Last, William Franklin was Brand. In 2004, he took over for Peter Jones as voice of the book in the radio version of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. So, oh. Yeah. Val Guest was back as the director, so of course he used the cinema verite techniques and handheld camera techniques to give it more authenticity like he did with the last one. Mm-hmm. They had a... Much bigger budget, 92,000 pounds, possible due to pre-selling the distribution rights to United Artists. And UA contributed 64,000 pounds toward the production, as well as Brian Dunleavy's plane fare and his <laughs> uh, his $25,000 fee. Although they did shoot at Bray Studios, which we've talked about, Hammer's studio, they also did a bunch of location filming, including the same oil refinery, Shell Haven in Stanford, La Hope. Which was same, a great location. Yeah, this is the same location they used for the TV series. Despite its size, the plant was run by a relatively small number of personnel. So that made it very easy for guests to make sure that the set was clear and all that. Because there's quite uh, a bit of wide shots on that too. Yeah, and he was surprised at how easy it was to do climactic gun battles here (laughs) in such a potentially flammable location so i don't know how easy it actually was or how much they were just like okay here's the refinery you do what you want but like (laughs) apparently focus puller harry oaks remembered that the camera crew took great precaution by using a newman sinclair clockwork camera due to their fears of you know the danger of sparks from electrical equipment So the Newman Sinclair clockwork camera was often used for things like shooting in mines or places where there's danger of explosions. Apparently the camera crew was taking precautions, even if the effects crew was just going to have open gun battles. Who knows? Maybe the oil refinery people were the same people that managed wind scale. (laughs) They used matte paintings also to, for the backgrounds Mm. in addition to the refinery to show the giant domes. There's a lot of good matte paintings in this movie, too. Yeah, they're beautiful. It got its first public screening on the 22nd of March in 1957. The film received an X certificate from the BBFC. I wondered, I wondered about that because it is tame compared to the last two movies. <laughs> it got an X again. It was released in the U.S. under the name Enemy from Space. It got mixed reviews. Campbell Dixon in the Daily Telegraph found the film, quote, all good grisly fun if this is the sort of thing you enjoy, unquote. That's the kind of review. It's like, well, I can't find anything to like really criticize for it, but I just don't like it because I'm a critic. Well, that's what reminds me of every critic's review of a horror film. Of like a lot of films, like any like good big budget or popular film, you know? Well, yeah, but particularly horror. Particularly horror, yes, definitely. The only horror films that get really good reviews get them years afterwards. So, like, they'll trash Jaws or The Exorcist when it comes out, and then years (laughs) later, they'll talk about how great a movie it was, you know? And it's funny, because, like, those movies got, like, 
best picture nominations the years they came out too yeah in the times they said quote the writer of the original story mr nigel neal and the director mr val guest between them keep things moving at the right speed without digressions the film has an air of respect for the issues touched on and this impression is confirmed by the acting generally but in the london evening news they wrote quote Science fiction hokum can be convincing, exciting, or just plain laughable. Quartermass 2 fails on all these scores, I'm afraid. And in the Daily Herald, they said, quote, the whole thing is daft and full of stilted dialogue. At the end, a detective says, how am I going to make a report on all this? I felt the same way. What is it with critics and horror films? I just have to say. I don't know. It's it's like, Um, it's, it's not until like, the elevated horror genre came out pretty recently that we started to see better reviews for horror films, but it's just like, I almost think like in a way that that's also doing a bit of disservice to horror as well, because it's kind of like, it's getting out of that primal sense that people have with horror films, you know? Yep. Quartermass in the pit followed this in 1958. December 1958 to January 1959 on TV. So there was yet another sequel. But because of the success of The Curse of Frankenstein, Hammer really decided to focus on that stuff and didn't actually even bother to acquire the rights until 1961 to Quartermass in the Pit. Didn't come out with a film Mm. version until 1967. Which I have to wonder if there is a bit more of a graphic nature to it, like we saw with... X the Unknown and like what we saw with Quartermass Experiment, just the graphic moments that those movies had. If we had that in this film, I wonder if it might have been as successful as Curse of Frankenstein. Over the years, it still continues to have a split between the critics that like it and the critics that don't. There's not like uniform acclaim or disdain for it. I think that's pretty much it. So let's get into talking about the film itself. Okay. The thing that kicks this whole movie off we have this couple that are just like frantically driving down the street she's trying to say it's like oh we're we're almost there we're gonna get you to a place the one note i had is like i don't know what they're doing with the wind machine but the scarf she had made it look like she was wearing an egyptian headdress (laughs) yeah but then the guy is like infected some way and he like grabs the wheel and sends her straight down a hill literally the plot runs straight into quarter mass as he's passing by on the street yeah, Quartermass just happens to be in the right place at the right time to meet yep. the first person, well, <laughs> a person that's been infected. A person that's been infected, and yes. has this strange V-shaped mark on his face. And he keeps trying to get back to where he was being pulled from. All right, so he's still got his British rocketry group, and mm-hmm. Quartermass's latest project is they're trying to colonize the moon. Which, by the way, we're still trying to do today. (laughs) So this still kind of holds up in that we're still like haven't built our first moon base. I mean, it's currently a priority both for NASA and I think China also is trying to. Mm -hmm. Hey, got to get extra real estate out there. His staff are monitoring the radar and they see all these hundreds of meteorites landing in Winterton Flats. And at first they think maybe the equipment is not adjusted properly. So they decide to like lower the satellites the satellite or antennas and, yeah, yeah. and like and rescan it. That's when Quartermass shows up. <laughs> the asshole is back. Yeah, big time. Yep. <laughs> which again. I love that about this, like, because he's totally a real dude. It's like, I'm sure this is exactly why Nigel Neal hates this. He's not like some like quiet, contemplative British professor. He comes in, he's like, why is the equipment low? You know, and never mind that that's actually like a good thing that they did that. <laughs> just, just like, <laughs> right. Yeah. Like I, I was wondering, I was like, who's this stuffy asshole in this? But the the thing that I liked is like at the end of that scene, he actually does apologize to them. And you find out he just came from a ministry meeting about him talking about the budget, which apparently they hacked up. It made me ask, did ministries kill the UK's place in the space race? I I have to wonder if like, if Britain's place in the space race was killed because of ministries. (laughs) I just don't think 
Britain was ever part of the space race. No. They had to rebuild it from being bombed during World War II. Right. It's really kind of like there was one game in town when it came to that, and that was Germany. And they had like rocket scientists and then like the US and the Soviet Union scooped up all the Nazi right. rocket scientists. They could, <laughs> you know? And then so then it became a two-way race between the US and, and the Russia. Soviet Union. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, yeah, like, cause as we'd find out later in the year, that's when Sputnik's getting launched. <laughs> yeah. So he ends up going to investigate where these meteorites were supposedly downed and, mm-hmm. um, Quartermass sees this huge, I think if I'm remembering this in the right order, first Quartermass sees this complex that looks exactly like their yes, yes, he does. colony. Then he yep. goes back and tells his staff, it looked exactly <laughs> like our model. And then he and Marsh go back to look for it. And that's when Marsh finds gets one infected. of them, picks it up and it explodes in his face and he gets infected with the V-shaped mark. A bunch yep. of uniformed guards come from the complex with machine guns and they've got the same v-shaped mark and they take him away and they yeah, order yeah. quartermass to leave I, I just love like the flat delivery one soldier says like he looks him over after like knocking him down and just like chases him over to his car just like the flat delivery of just him going go now i know like i love that <laughs> so it reminds me of this thing that happened to me years ago where I have a motor scooter and um, a bunch of my friends have vintage Vespas and we were like out for a ride. I don't know. This was decades ago. And (laughs) we were in um, Carthage, Ohio area or whatever. And then we were heading town toward like uh, what's known as Ivorydale. Okay. Yeah. On a scooter, you can go places that roads don't. So we went less like sort of off to the side and followed the railroad tracks mm-hmm. you know so we were going over rocks and stuff like that and let that let <laughs> us the the railroad itself goes into this complex owned by i guess procter and gamble at the time which was uh, like this huge soap making factory in cincinnati ohio or in norwood ohio actually you know it looks like a refinery there's stuff everywhere in pipes and so we're riding our scooters through <laughs> this place and we got chased by pinkertons and so <laughs> it was really cool because we were like running from them on our scooters <laughs> and we could go places they weren't. And I don't know if you guys remember the Pinkertons are like the um they're they're like the union busters from you know, oh, the oh. early days. I guess they actually go back to the old west, but they're uh you know they're private detective security force. Oh um, yeah. I think most recently in the news for like raiding Magic the Gathering. What places? I don't know. Anyway. Uh, yeah, I think Wizards of the Coast hired them to, to raise. Anyway, whatever. They're they're a private <laughs> security firm, and so they chased us. And then when it, we finally like made it to the border, like found the way out of the complex, out onto the streets, and like they they got us as far as the gates when they pulled, they blocked us off, and they're like, they're just like, go, and you know, in that monotone, and don't come back, you know. <laughs> yep. <laughs> anyway, sorry, long story that probably doesn't mean crap to anyone but i figured i'd share it. Uh, that's oh. a fun story though i kind of want to find these train tracks now yeah <laughs> he tries to go to like the this nearby town i want to say like a miner's town or whatever but they say that they don't contact the police there yeah it's a company town have, yeah. yeah it's a company town so so did we ever find out if that company is like they they, they kind of work with the the complex out there, right? It is like the complex. Were... The complex. Yeah. Is the... Okay. All right. And they so they like... don't they don't have any police work like this. Company it's like a mining town. town. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a yeah. Exactly. Town or whatever, where it's like there's the company store and there's like the company controls everything, and you know there's no mm-hmm. yep. we don't need a police force. Like no no no, we'll just talk to the people the, on the committee here, and then the company takes care of everything. Yeah. You know? And of course, quartermass being quartermass, he's having none of that. So and there's, there's right. like posters and everything that's just like a mining town. That's it like really you know, is. Job, yeah. You know, don't talk or your job. Don't talk online, about the job. You know, yeah, exactly. Like, All the propaganda posters and stuff. It just okay. I'm just gonna say this: the production design of this movie i think is of the three i've seen the most superior i love great set design in film i love like stuff that catches your eye like your blade runner or just dune or any of these like visual feasts of the set design i the matte painting for quartermass's 
complex in the beginning, I thought was beautifully done. The depth on that was fantastic. This complex that we see, the oil refinery, this town, like just the way all of it's incorporated and just even those little touches of the posters inside this town. I need to look up who the production designer was on this, but they deserve a lot of credit for how gorgeous this movie looked. They definitely create a sense of isolation in this, not just this town, but this refinery and just how detached it feels as we find out in the next scene when Quartermass goes to England, goes to the big city to talk to his friend. We also have like the symbol, like this like government symbol. It's like, it says like there's a government access area, but the, yeah. I, I had to look it up. Like if it was an actual government symbol or if it was like a specific symbol just for this place, but he looks over on the street and sees these flatbeds carrying stuff that's got a tarp over it with these logos and everything on there. And they're driving these down England as well. It's like, there's no effect. There's no, they literally made this and drove it through the city for this shot. So like the production designer of this really needs a shout out because it's, it definitely elevated it far beyond the fifties B movie set design that we would see and gave it like a really, really good look. The other thing that cracks me up is when the soldiers come, it's just like cops in the UK. I think I told on this podcast about how, like, when I was in Oxford, England, a cop stopped me, a Bobby, by, like, blowing a whistle. And, like, yep. I didn't even know. And I'm like, you hear this whistle, and I'm like, what's that? You know, it's like, <laughs> and, and, and it's in this, too. It's like, it's weird that, like, people just listen to a whistle. Like, I would have been like, well, you know, like, because in the US, we're not used to like cops blowing a whistle to be right. stopped. It's like, yeah. no, they roll up on you in a in a police cruiser and then yep. they grab you. Like they don't, they don't even, like, <laughs> You're right. like, you know, anything like that. They grab you and, you know, throw you up against the car and stuff like that. In England, they're like, they're all polite about it and they like blow a whistle and you're supposed to like follow orders or something. I don't know. Right. But, so you well, hear it, this tweet, tweet, tweet. And he's like, <laughs> he's like, why aren't you stopping waiting for yeah waiting for them to come all the way up the hill to like you know talk to him and all that yeah because like for us in america the only authority figure that blows a whistle at us is a lifeguard and we're conditioned to just like look at everybody else and think oh they're talking about them yeah anyway so quatermass has no help from the company town so then he tries to go to the county police first and right they're kind of like well what do you expect us to do about it you know it's like, oh, yeah. did uh, did you did, did did the guard were the guards? It sounds there? Like, it's like you oh. were trespassing on there. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's like, ah, oh, um, crap! You got in touch with the guards. Nope, we don't want to deal with them. <laughs> so, but Quartermass has connections in the government because he, you know, he's a part of a government project too. So he goes all the way to the top, literally in a scene that was shot in the House of Lords. Uh, a member of Parliament, Vincent Broadhead, also skeptical and wants to have a look into it. Every time somebody goes to visit, they come back and they don't say anything about it. But he manages to get a tour of the facility and he's going to bring Quartermass with him. Mm -hmm. And then the guy that says that they're on the tour does seem to have a bit of a mark on them as well. Yeah. At first, I was like, they're going in Rolls Royces. And then I'm like, well, of course they're going in Rolls Royces. Of course. From the House of Lords or whatever. Right. right? (laughs) Yeah. The audio mix was again off on this one. Kind of we like we mentioned with the last one, it wasn't as bad, but there was, was a, yeah, um, there was a quote from this where they they're like going, and I think they have cops with them, and they're like, "We don't have police here," and and they they said, "Well, you do now." <laughs> <laughs> they get on this tour and they go straight into the facility, and it's a procedural thing. They're just walking through. Then like they the say they're place- making synthetic food. Who's the guys you mentioned that wanted to go with them? Uh, that- so Inspector Lomax and Vincent Broadhead. Vincent Broadhead. Broadhead. It was Broadhead. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Broadhead. Oh, no, it's not Broadhead. It's Quatermass. He leaves the tour. There's like, oh wait, sir, you can't, you can't go, you can't do this. Is like, and the first place he goes is like, oh, that's the medical facility. He runs straight to the medical facility because he wants to talk to the doctor. To find out it's oh is, is marsh there because this has only been like a day since the accident with marsh so he wants to see where marsh is and the doctor that's there says there's nobody here all beds are empty and it's like so why do you have all this here 
the tour guides, of course, are like save all questions for the end, save all questions for the end. And each time, Broadhead and Quatermass, they're trying to like branch off from this tour line, and this guy's trying to keep them in line. This is the moment I had to pause the movie because I wanted to write the note down. The first time we talked about Quatermass experiment, we kind of got into the bit of the Kirk Picard debate because Quatermass is definitely very much a Captain Kirk mentality. Yep. And this is the story I feel it was most appropriate because it felt like the tone and the theme of this was about rigid procedural approaches being the gateway for Trojan horses to infiltrate and thrive. And you need a quartermass to make sure that that is not going to happen because he will see through all of the procedurals and he will make sure that what's the right thing to do gets done. This is the story I wanted yeah, to well, see Quartermass thrive in. This is like, so I feel like with the next generation, Picard takes the uh, prime directive seriously. Name one time Shatner ever took the prime directive seriously. Oh, you know, he never like, did. Like, like, like so, <laughs> so in this, they, they're like supposed to be good little soldiers and follow the tour and come along into this. Just mm-hmm. everybody just come inside this building. And, you know, and like Quartermass is like, I don't like this. And then you hear an alarm go off and you start to see a door close. And he yeah, goes, he why is that door closing? He's like, oh, it's for your safety. He's like, and it's like, yeah, like, why are you closing us in for our safety? He starts taking out. The tour guide's, like, trying to pull him back in, and Quatermass gets out. And, and that's, I mean, that is a straight-up yeah. Shatner-type move. It right? is a straight-up Shatner-type move. And this is the story that needed to be in. I felt in Quatermass' experiment, it didn't quite work out so well. We did need a Picard for that story. This one, we needed a Kirk. We needed someone to cheat at the Kobayashi Maru. You're right. He notices that they all have this V-shaped mark and the conspiracy goes all the way up to the government now yes. because he knows that all these previous members of parliament have visited and then they all come back going along with it. He goes back to Inspector Lomax and he says, you have got to get a raid. You've got to get a raid in here. There's a so- small little army in there. And then the inspector goes to the commissioner <laughs> As he's telling the commissioner, he's like, oh, so what What? Uh, what do you have an issue with? And he's writing something down. And as the inspector looks at his hand, he notices the same V-shape marked on the hand. So the commissioner is also infected too. And I had to pause it because what he was writing on was it, it looked like the all all work and no play make Jack a dull boy. <laughs> like mm-hmm. it was literally just like a repeated typed line over and over again. I paused it to see. And the line that, he, that was constantly written was, now is the time for all good men. The police commissioner has like a V on him too. So they decide they can't go to the authorities. So there's like this drunk reporter that shows up. Yeah. Like Paul. And I don't know if someone threw this in. Like I'm, I'm thinking that maybe Nigel Neal wrote this part in to like make fun of Don Levy, you know, mm-hmm. but he's drunk and like Quartermass is like, ah, oh, what are we going to do? And Lomax is like, no, no. When he's not drunk, he's actually really good at his job. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and you're wow. That, you yes. remember that part? And so yep. they bring him in. Jimmy Hall is his name. And he's skeptical of their story, but he goes to Winterden Flats and starts asking questions at the community center and they turn really hostile toward him. Yeah. And so he knows that there's a story in this. He immediately calls his newspaper and mm-hmm. like lets them know. Because what it is, is they go into like this dance at this town. Like everyone's getting together. It's like an after work party. And then literally those rocks start coming in through the roof and yep. hit this again, probably actress that was there for her gorgeous legs or whatever. Sheila, the bar. Yeah, exactly. The rock blows up around her. Well, there the guards some... show up. The guards, the guards the... show up. Yeah. And they shoot him. They shoot Jimmy. Like... They shoot Jimmy while he's on the phone um, with his, yeah. with the, his newspaper. They, well, and they, they also, they also take the barmaid away as well. They just take her away after they've shot this guy. It's like the villagers in Frankenstein. Like literally this whole mob yeah. marches on the complex. Going back to the parallels to things like invasion of the body snatchers or whatever we're coming out of a time period here in the 2020s where we've just gone through 
about a 15, maybe even 20 year long zombie trend in movies. Yeah. It's come and gone over the years, but this latest trend lasted for a long time. And I think we're finally through it. But that scene where the rabble is like storming the gates and the army trucks are going by, it's like, I've seen this in a bunch of zombie films recently or or TV shows or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, I don't know why, but there seems to be a parallel there. And I'm sure there that metaphorically, there's some sort of parallel to be made there thematically or something. Yeah, anyway, I mean, like a, I, I just, a working class storming a government facility. Yeah, so it's the first kind of ghoul. It's kind of like a zombie film. It's like kind of like the first ghouls as zombies, right? Know, kind of thing. Um, and, and it's they also even call the, them zombies in this. They do. But, yeah. yeah, they do, don't they? Yeah. But this is the army that Quatermass needed to get into the facility and see what was inside the domes and all that. During like the scenes where they're storming the gates, we see his guard walk up gets to the window, looks inside, and it's a gigantic mass. Another gigantic blob. I, I don't want to like sell that short because it looks it looks a lot more impressive than we've seen in the last couple films, too. With so. one exception, there's a point where, of course, it busts out. And there's one oh, okay. point where you can yeah. see that there's some guy walking underneath like a giant I, 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 oh yeah i wasn't gonna i didn't get to that far yet i was just thinking like the oh wow still in the container you see the okay, details sorry. and it's like it's not such a bad look to it and then so yeah it, gets turns after out it breaks the, out <laughs> yeah it turns out that the earth's atmosphere is probably poisonous so instead they're like pumping pure oxygen into the domes mm-hmm. at one point they're all like holed up in in one part of the refinery and again, you get the night of the living dead moment where there's a guy, I'm going out there. Don't go out there. I'm going down to the basement. I'm going to, you know, mm-hmm. it's like. Well, so- and this is the thing that was getting me is like, you hear like his voice on a loudspeaker. I heard a voice. I couldn't tell what the hell it was saying throughout the whole thing. <laughs> but apparently like the voice or whatever convinced one of their party to go out. I was like, oh, well, we'll be okay. So he goes out and uh, he becomes part of the pipes or whatever. <laughs> like he. Yep. They had tank buster rifles, and I think he fired one of them at the dome, which blew the dome apart, and that's what caused it to get out. Yeah, and so then it turns into the giant monster for like film at that point. All, all uh, of two to three minutes. It, it never yeah. really leaves the compound. We'll leave off there. I don't want to like give away completely the ending or anything like that, but overall impression, what did you think? Like I mentioned, it didn't have the graphic moments. We see face melting in X the Unknown, or we see like the giant arm deforming and stuff from the quartermass experiment. Like, but overall, like just the story itself, I think this actually fit better for me. Like this this came together a lot better for me than the first two movies did. Like X the Unknown was pretty good. It had some graphic moments. Quartermass experiment I thought was good as well. But like like I said, like we got into the whole Kirk Picard debate as to like whether Quatermass was suited for this type of story. This was the story that Quatermass was, I think, best suited for. And I think because of that, and just because of the story of an infiltrating virus and infected people that you don't know how high up the conspiracy goes, Hail Hydra or whatever. Yeah. Um <laughs> uh, I really liked that kind of story and I liked the look of it. I liked the sense of isolation that the story felt like it had with the design. So overall, I think of the three, this is where it seems like the series is working best for me. And it really sucks because it's like, apparently like if I was like this in 1957, I'd have to wait 10 more years for another movie to come out. (laughs) I liked it a lot. I thought it was really good. I thought that the sense of paranoia and stuff was much better in this than mm-hmm. you know the previous films. The other films, there was some implied paranoia, but this one, it's straight up like there, you know, and yeah. it's in everything from the production design to the dialogue. There's also a great last line in this film. Lomax says, what worries me is writing the final report on all this. Mm-hmm. And, and then... Quatermass says, 
what worries me is how final can it be right you know? i did like that so, line of the three right now would you say where would you put this amongst the other the one and the 1.5 uh this is the best okay i think yeah what, what do you think absolutely think that i echo that 100 like the paranoia sets it far above the first two the first two are more graphic this one just gets into that sense of paranoia that doesn't leave you as a viewer that'll about do us for this episode i want to remind you to tell a friend about the show just get one other person to listen to the show that's something that i am asking everyone to do that's <laughs> uh, the only way we can get our name out there because we don't have a big social media presence the algorithm doesn't notice us every celebrity in the world has a podcast now so like breaking out and being seen is like next to impossible so the only way people can find us is by someone actually telling them to listen to the show i don't think it's ever going to naturally come up in their feeds or in anything like that so please just let somebody else know if you want to communicate with us you can write to us at gc8 podcast that's letter g letter c number eight podcast at gmail.com until next time this is eric and this is john signing off Working class rabble not believing science? There's no way that would ever happen.